Congratulations, true crime addicts. We've survived another week. It is July 29th, 2022. And I'm on vacation, so I'm going to give you a special presentation. Remember back in the day in the 80s when you'd be sitting at home and there were like three or four stations on the tube TV and then the CBSI would show up. And there'd be that voice special presentation. And then all the, the lights and the rainbows and blue, blue, blue. And, and then you'd go into like a movie and it'd be like Superman. But Superman, you could only see in theaters back then. Nobody could afford any VHS tapes. Anyways, think of it kind of like that. This is a special presentation. And, and uh, what it is, is a short story, all true. Um... About a guy named Donnie Soki. He's a friend of mine. And he's sitting in prison in Ohio. And according to the Ohio judicial system, he's supposed to be sitting there for another 888 years. Of course, he's not going to live that long. He's been in prison since 1987. Uh, for murders, I believe, that he did not commit. So, for your... Uh, listening pleasure, I present to you Little Liars Everywhere. I hope you find it illuminating. When COVID lockdown happened, I started work on a new true crime book, this one about the 1990 unsolved murder of Lisa Pruitt. I had written about the case as a reporter for Scene magazine, but I'd always felt unfinished, and I had since acquired thousands of pages of documents from the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office related to the case and the wrongful prosecution of Kevin Young for her murder. I went into the project with my own opinion about what had happened that night and I was surprised to discover a new suspect. This new information also uncovered another wrongful conviction, and I came to believe that a man who had been sitting in prison since 1985 was innocent of the murders he was charged with. That was the beginning of my friendship with Donnie Soki, who spends most days in a small cage in the Toledo Correctional Institute. He has 888 more years to serve and will likely die there. I wrote this new piece of true crime journalism in an attempt to share his story in the hopes that one day he might be free. This is a special bonus episode of The Philosophy of Crime, and I'm your host, James Renner. Little Liars Everywhere. Four murders, two false confessions, one meddling cop, and some Shaker Heights kids in the middle of it all. James Arnos was only 19 when he found his grandfather's dead body. It was Sunday, May 19, 1985, and James's mother, Jolie, 
had become concerned that she had not heard from her mother in several days. So she sent her son James to check in. Her mother was Dorothy Porter, a renowned artist, who lived with her husband Philip Porter in a large house in Shaker Heights, on Lee Road near Shaker Boulevard. Philip was an executive editor of The Plain Dealer in the 60s. The couple were practically Cleveland royalty. When James arrived, he discovered the day's paper, a Sunday Plain Dealer, still sitting in the driveway, a bad omen to find at the home of a career journalist. All the doors were locked, but the lights were on inside. When he knocked, nobody came to the door. So James went and told his mother. The two of them returned to the house, and Jolie used a spare key to open the kitchen door. Mother, she called, but nobody answered. Jolie could sense something was very wrong. She told James to go next door and get help. James returned quickly with the neighbor, and the two of them went upstairs while Jolie remained by the door. The young man found Philip in bed. He'd been stabbed twice in the back. His body lay face down, dressed in pajamas, his fingers still grasping a pair of eyeglasses. A thermos of milk and a plate of crackers rested on the nightstand. They found Dorothy in the basement. She'd been stabbed once and strangled to death with the cord from her iron. Peter Gray was chief of police in Shaker Heights back then. Chief Gray told the media that the Porter's murders appeared to be a burglary gone wrong, but they had no leads. Philip and Dorothy were last seen alive on May 17th, a Friday night, when they'd hosted a cocktail party at their house. Their guests left around 7 o'clock. It appeared the break-in had happened between 7 and 9 p.m., an odd time for such a brazen home invasion. It would have still been light outside. The point of entry was a kitchen window. Someone had cut through the screen and climbed inside. Nothing appeared to be disturbed, Chief Gray told the plane dealer. It doesn't appear to be a regular burglary with things shuffled around. There was none of that. There wasn't even a real sign of a struggle. If it weren't for the two dead bodies, you wouldn't know something bad had happened. Dorothy's purse and wallet were out in the open when police arrived. The working theory was that a burglar had come in as the porters were preparing for bed, and Dorothy had come down and interrupted the crime. This was in the days before DNA, long before the magic of genetic genealogy. Their only suspect was an unidentifiable black man that a 15-year-old neighborhood kid named David Brannigan had seen running away from the house that night. The case went cold for many years. Then, in 1990, Shaker Heights detectives caught a break. A young con named Donnie Soakey confessed to the crime. He said that he and his father had broken into the house that night looking to rob the porters, but then things got out of hand and his old man had to kill them. Donnie was quickly convicted and remains in prison to this day. His father, Ted, died in prison in 2008. So what's the mystery? It's a closed case, off the books. The murderer is dead. His accomplice is in prison. Justice was done. Except, Donnie Soakey recanted his confession during his trial, and again just this year. He says a rogue Eastlake cop helped him invent the story with the promise of favors in prison. All we know for sure is that there is no physical evidence linking Donnie or his father to the scene of the crime, and a new review of the murders suggests a much better suspect, that teen who claimed to see a black man running from the porter's house that night, David Brannigan, who would later turn up as a suspect in another Shaker Heights tragedy, 
the unsolved murder of Lisa Pruitt. And if Soki is telling the truth, the Shaker Heights police may have let a killer slip through their fingers twice. What would cause Donnie Soki to confess to murders he never committed? To understand how that happened, it's important to first understand where Donnie Soki came from. Debbie Hawley is Donnie's older sister. Today, she works as a hairstylist and is a single mother to three grown children out on the west side. Fifty years ago, she was Donnie's protector, holding his hand on the long walks to school out in the country. Their father, Ted, was in prison for burglary, and she and Donnie and their youngest brother, Dean, were living with their grandparents. Their mother had abandoned them. It was better for them when their father was in prison. Ted ran with the Hells Angels and had a violent temper. I remember Ted beating Donnie as a kid, said Holly. I remember hearing Donnie scream bloody murder one day, and I ran outside to see my dad had pushed Donnie's face into the gravel driveway and was pounding on him. I told him, stop, you're going to kill him. Violence in the Soki family has been passed down like a bad gene. When her father was a child, says Holly, her grandparents would tie him up in the basement and make him lean his knees into corn kernels until he behaved. When she turned 13, Holly was invited back to live with their mother and her brothers ended up as wards of the state. That's when Donnie, who she remembers as a sweet boy, started getting into serious trouble. Looking back, I think Donnie had undiagnosed ADD, says Holly. I think he was just a kid who couldn't settle his mind and his environment was chaos. How are you supposed to act when your parents give you up? He went into a boy's home and found more abuse there. Then, their mother got cancer. Donnie was 18 and serving a 3-15 to 15 stretch pickaway on a burglary charge. Even though his mother had abandoned him, Donnie desperately wanted to see her before she died. And that's when he came up with a really stupid plan to make up information about a crime to exchange for early release. It takes about an hour to gain entry into the visitor's room at the Toledo Correctional Institution today. It's a maximum security prison operating during a pandemic and security is paramount. Visitation only occurs on certain days and a visitor must schedule in advance. Once there, you must submit to a rapid COVID test and then return to your car for 20 minutes until somebody calls with the results. If it comes back negative, you can then proceed to check-in. There's paperwork to fill out and you're given a visitor's badge, which you then must carry to the next building where they scan your driver's license. After that, you're let through a man trap and a set of double doors and into the prison itself. You're taken to visitation then, a room the size of an elementary school gym, where you take a seat at a long table with a plexiglass partition that keeps any germs to one side. Then the prisoner is paged and led from their cell to the room. As a prize for making it all this way, chips and water are provided. I chose Doritos when I met with Donnie Soki. The first thing I noticed, other than the spiderweb tattoo that covers his entire face, was that Soki was missing a finger, a pinky. I'm in Toledo for my protection, he explains. The Aryan Brotherhood nearly killed me, took my finger, so they brought me here. This was the first time I'd met Donnie Soki in person, but we'd spoken on the phone at least once a week for six months. I knew his story already, but we went over it all again. The first link in the chain of terrible circumstances that leads to Donnie being in Toledo Correctional, minus a finger, is a deep-for-trouble man 
named Daniel Ott. Ask any law enforcement official who served in Cleveland in the last 50 years, and they're likely to have a story or two about Dan Ott. His rap sheet goes back to 1960 and includes at least 14 counts of auto theft. He was just sent back to prison in 2019 at the age of 78 for stealing a trailer owned by a drug task force. In 2006, an unfortunate man who shared his name was murdered by hitmen who were too stupid to verify their target. In 1989, Ott was a police informant, feeding detectives information he picked up on the rumor mill in prison, rolling on batter guys to reduce his own sentence. Ott told police that he knew of a guy in prison named Soki, who had something to do with the murder of a schoolteacher's wife. An Eastlake detective named Tom Doyle heard about this, and he figured he meant Karen Laspina, the wife of a popular high school teacher out that way. Karen Laspina's bloodied body had been found inside her Eastlake home on October 10, 1985, just five months after the Porter's murders. She'd been stabbed 55 times and bled out on the kitchen floor. Soon, Doyle was visiting Donnie in prison. At first, Donnie told him that he and his buddy Kirby had gone out drinking in a hustle pool the day of the murder, but they weren't as good at pool as they thought, and they decided it would be easier to just rob somebody. They drove around looking for empty houses to ransack and ended up at the Lespina home. Soki and his cohort broke in, thinking the place was empty, and Karen surprised him, so Kirby killed her. That was his initial story. But police were able to confirm that Kirby was elsewhere at the time of the murder. Detective Doyle had a hunch that the murder had actually been committed by Soki's father, Ted. He thought it likely that Donnie was trying to cover for his old man by implicating somebody else. Eventually, Donnie gave him the story he was looking for. Yeah, he said, it was my father. He, he did the real killing. Soki told Doyle that he would testify against his father on two conditions. One, that he get a reduced prison sentence for the burglary. And two, that Doyle would take him to see his mother. So for weeks, Doyle would pick Soki up from prison, take him to see his mom, maybe get him a pizza or a burger, and then drive him back. Each time, Soki divulged a little more information about his father's role in the Lespina homicide, like some hillbilly Scheherazade. There is no honor among thieves, even in the best of circumstances, and Donnie's father was a violent prick. Why not give Ted some of that trouble? Doyle's sister believes he did it simply to get attention from their father. After Donnie agreed to testify, Ted was indicted for the Lespina murder but charges were dropped after Donnie had a change of heart and admitted he made the whole thing up. None of it was true, but it was too late to unring the bell. Because of his confession, Donnie was convicted of the Lespina murder, and now he was in the slammer for life. What did Donnie do then? Well, like any gambling addict, he went double or nothing on another deal. He told Doyle that he had information on a murder involving a newspaper man. Doyle figured that Donnie meant Philip Porter and his wife Dorothy, who were murdered a day before Donnie's 18th birthday. Donnie said that he, his father, and another man named Danny Crawford broke into the Porter house and killed them. According to later statements by an appeals panel, Detective Doyle gave Donnie confidential police reports from the Porter homicides with all the information he needed to concoct his story. The fact that Donnie Soki had in his possession an initial crime scene investigation 
is nothing short of astounding, the judges wrote in their decision. Not one member of this distinguished panel can ever recall a report of this nature being produced at trial, let alone given into the possession of a witness. The reason is obvious, and it is to prevent a situation just as the one we have here now. One of the few credible things about the testimony of Donnie Soki was his knowledge of information that, quote, only the murderer could know, and that is now given a new dimension. Donnie and Crawford were given deals to roll on Ted Soki. Crawford would only be charged with burglary out in a couple months. Donnie was given a promise that if he testified against his father, the prosecutor would not seek the death penalty. Now, Donnie hated his father and wanted him in prison, but he also didn't want to send his father to the chair. Donnie took the deal, and Ted was convicted by a panel of three judges. But the prosecutor reneged on his promise to Donnie, and Ted was sentenced to life. So again, Donnie recanted his testimony, admitting he'd made it up, and Ted had to be retried. A jury found Ted guilty in that trial too, and he was resentenced to seven to life. There is not a single piece of physical evidence that links any of these men to the homicides of Karen Lespina or Philip and Dorothy Porter. And the testimony of the getaway driver, Danny Crawford, does not hold salt if you've ever been to Shaker. We drove around a few neighborhoods, Crawford said in his official statement. And we came across a couple houses that looked like they may be good prospects, but we decided on the Porter house. We parked right next door to the house out in the street. The Porters lived on Lee Road. There is no parking on Lee Road to this day. A shifty-eyed guy sitting in a ragged car in front of a mansion at 8 p.m. on Lee Road in May is likely to be spotted by neighbors or police within minutes. But Crawford said he sat there for nearly a half hour, unseen. The only thing that convicted the Sogies was Donnie's testimony and testimony from other jailhouse snitches who cut their own deals with police. And each of them dealt with one officer in particular, Detective Tom Doyle. Tom Doyle was the spokesman for the Eastlake Police for a number of years and cultivated close relationships with journalists in Cleveland. He still plays poker with some of them to this day. He has a gregarious nature and can tell one hell of a story, whether it's about going to war with the Hells Angels or how he was on the force when Eastlake formed their first detective bureau after a body washed up on the beach one day. Soon enough, he was investigating other high crimes. Doyle discovered early on that he was skilled at turning cons into confidential informants, and his informants helped solve his cases. And that was how a good detective proved his worth. When you're a detective, you get holidays, weekends, nights, because you're good at solving cases, he explained. You start not solving cases, you'll be back to dog complaints and druggies puking on you. The night of the Karen Lespina murder, Doyle was attending another cop's retirement party. Almost everyone in the department was there. The beer and booze were flowing, and in the midst of their celebration, everyone's pagers went off. That's how they learned about the homicide. Just about everybody there knew Karen's husband, Tony. Tony was a popular math teacher at Eastlake North. According to Doyle, Tony was also the guy who picked up their sports betting slips and drove them out to Dino's Bar, where some other guy took them to the Italians out in Collinwood and brought back their winnings. Tony had just gone into business with an Eastlake cop, Leon Hodkey, buying up houses to remodel and flip. Tony was also a part-time dispatcher for the department. Earlier that day, Tony had called Hodkey 
and asked him to come look at a new house. The cop came over, and then Tony, Karen, and their three kids drove around with him for a bit, but they didn't find the house, so they returned home. When they get home, Tony says to Karen, I'm going to the store to pick up a sweet estate present. You go inside, and I'll take the kids, and we'll be right back. Tony said that he found Karen's body on the floor inside when they returned. By Monday, we knew that Tony had a girlfriend, said Doyle. Tony gets an attorney, refuses a polygraph. Tony married his girlfriend six months later. The detectives took carpet samples from the scene. They found blood that didn't come from Karen. The lab told them that the blood contained esterase D, type 2, a rare gene that only one in a hundred people have. So Doyle and the other detectives put together a vampire kits, little packets that included a note card, a lancet, a piece of gauze, and a band-aid. Whenever they arrested someone for a violent crime, they asked them nicely for a blood sample to see if they had esterase D, type 2. August 15, 1989, I get a call, said Doyle. It's Buddy Kovacic, the nephew of the police chief in Cleveland. He says, I got this informant. That was Dan Ott, who suggested that Donnie Soki might have something to do with the crime. Doyle sent an officer down to collect a blood sample from Donnie Soki. When the officer asked for the blood, Soki said, this is about the school teacher's wife. Later, when I talked to him, I told him, you should never play cards, Donnie. So he told us what happened. Funny thing is, he didn't even have ESD2 in his blood, but his father did. It was around this time that Doyle learned about Danny Crawford, Soki's friend and sometime partner in crime. Doyle had a hunch that Crawford knew something about it all. So Doyle picked Crawford up from jail on a warrant to convey him to Lake County Jail. I put him in the back and I say, My warrant says I'm, I'm here to take you to Lake County, but it doesn't say how. You can relax, you can smoke, you can drink coffee, but you cause any problems, I'll put you in the trunk. For a while, all Crawford did was look out the window. Eventually, Doyle asked him what the fuck he was looking at. I haven't seen a tree in nine months, Crawford said. During their ride, Crawford told Doyle that Sure, Ted and Donnie did the Lispina murder. He agreed to testify against them. Meanwhile, other jailhouse snitches were suggesting that Donnie Soki and Danny Crawford were involved in even more crimes. Everyone wanted a deal from Doyle. One inmate said that he shared a cell with Crawford. Crawford got drunk one night and said, They didn't have to kill that old man. He couldn't even get out of bed. But they killed him and then, then they drank his milk and ate his cookies. Doyle surmised that the con must be talking about the unsolved murders of Philip and Dorothy Porter in Shaker Heights. Crawford seemed to know a lot of details about the crime scene. Now I hear this, said Doyle, and I'm thinking this inbred, fucking hillbilly, he doesn't, he doesn't read the paper. So how would he know about the milk and cookies? He couldn't. Doyle took the information to the detectives in Shaker Heights. At first they gave him the cold shoulder, and Doyle took it personally. He believed that the police in Shaker Heights looked at Eastlake as a hick department. It wasn't a particularly good time for Doyle. At home, his marriage was falling apart. His wife had caught him cheating. She wanted a divorce, and she wanted him to stop chasing the Porter case. But he couldn't leave it alone. Finally, two Shaker Heights detectives met with Doyle to hear him out. They came out to Eastlake, and Doyle introduced them to Crawford's girlfriend. That's when the girlfriend told them about how She'd send him newspaper clippings when he was in prison. He really was a hick who read the news, and he'd had all the details to fabricate his story. The detectives were furious. 
One thought Doyle was wasting their time. He called me an asshole, and then he left, said Doyle. When Doyle returned home that night, he found a half-eaten pizza in a box for supper. On the box was a note from his wife. She'd taken the kids and left. The detective sat and ate the pizza and mused on his life. What is wrong with you, Tom, he wondered. How can I see something that nobody else sees? At 9 a.m. the following morning, Shaker Heights detective Gerald Jankowski called. He thought there might be something to Doyle's theory after all. So Jankowski and Doyle hit the prisons again, fishing for informants that could link the Sogies to Philip and Dorothy Porter. Eventually, Doyle was able to get Donnie to testify against his father to close the Porter's homicides. Doyle visited Donnie shortly after the verdict. Donnie was exuberant, said Doyle. He thinks he's getting out of prison because he made a deal to testify, but he pleaded guilty to a first-degree felony in the process. I tell him, I don't know why God takes angels and makes them babies and gives them to people like Ted Soakey, but he did, and that man ruined your life. You're fucked. You're never getting out. Donnie started to cry. But I felt good, said Doyle. I felt unburdened. The next day, Doyle accepted an award for being the top investigator in the entire state of Ohio. This moment was clearly the height of Doyle's career. On the way back to his empty house after accepting the award, the big clunky car phone in Doyle's vehicle rang. It was not good news. A judge had just vacated Ted's conviction in the Porter's case. Donnie had contacted the court and said he'd lied on the stand because the police had offered him deals. Donnie claimed that every word he'd said on the stand was untrue. Now, the Cuyahoga County prosecutor wanted Doyle's head. To this day, Doyle believes the Sokies killed Philip and Dorothy Porter. And it wasn't a simple interrupted burglary, he says, but a targeted assassination. His working theory is that Ted was a member of the Hells Angels and, you know, Philip had written some unsavory things about the motorcycle gang as a journalist decades before so he had to be gotten rid of. Doyle is retired now, but his last years on the force were fraught with controversy. On March 9, 2006, Doyle and another police officer were driving down US-6 after having a few drinks. Doyle stopped the car in the middle of the westbound lane and got out to take a piss. A 21-year-old in a Nissan came up behind him, swerved to avoid the car, and hit Doyle instead, sending the policeman flying. Doyle broke his shoulder and leg in the accident. The young man who hit him was actually cited for failure to control. After a 12-week investigation, Doyle was charged with driving under the influence and improper parking. Danny Crawford has kept close with Doyle over the years. Some time ago, according to Doyle, Crawford called him to ask for a ride back to town from prison. Since then, Doyle has spent around $1,000 of his own money to help Crawford acclimate to life outside. Not because I feel guilty, not by any means, Doyle wanted me to know. The system fucked him. Doyle believes he always did what he had to do. And even if Doyle is retired, he's still a cop at heart. He's put two of his own sons in jail for heroin possession. I'm a firm believer in doing the right thing, he said. Donnie has sent Doyle 500 pages of his recollections. According to Doyle, Donnie has already admitted to two additional homicides. One of them is the murder of Nadine Madger of Willoughby, who was killed in 1980. Donnie would have been 13 at the time. Donnie says he keeps admitting to crimes because Doyle keeps putting money on his commissary account. 
prison is hell, but some money for snacks and coffee makes it just a little more comfortable. If Donnie made it all up, then who killed Philip and Dorothy Porter? There were other suspects for a time. Before Donnie confessed, the only leads the police had came from three neighborhood kids, David Brannigan and his two friends. Let's call them John and Bill. Bill was 13, John was 14, and David Brannigan was 15 at the time. The boys told an intriguing story. On the night of the murders, Bill's parents were hosting a preview party for an upcoming auction. They were moving out of town soon and selling some pieces before they left. When the adults weren't looking, the boys stole some beers and snuck through Brannigan's backyard to the abandoned house beside the Porter's residence, where they broke into a garage and let off some fireworks. They told detectives that as they were leaving, they saw a black man in the Porter's backyard. The boys observed the suspect looking through the rear windows, the report reads. The suspect apparently did not see the boys at first, as he was slightly crouched down, walking slowly by the rear windows and still looking inside. The boys didn't tell their parents about any of this until the police came knocking at their door while canvassing the area. Bill and John sat with sketch artists who came up with two different drawings of a generic black man. Five years after the Porters were murdered, Brannigan inserted himself into another homicide investigation, the murder of Lisa Pruitt. Brannigan went to the police station the day after Lisa's murder to tell them a familiar story. He'd run into a black man at a bus stop, and he believed that man was responsible for Lisa's murder, as well as the murders of the Porters. Brannigan was 20 years old when Lisa was murdered, and he lived in his uncle's house on Sedgwick Road, which runs parallel to Lee. Brannigan's home was just behind the Porter's house, diagonally to the south, separated by some trees and bushes. When Brannigan spoke to police the day after Lisa's murder, he told them he'd walked by the scene that night, returning home from dropping off his girlfriend, Holly Robinson. He accurately described the police and the canine unit that had searched the corner of Lee in South Woodland. He said he'd been stopped by a detective but let go, and that his aunt was awake when he got home. He said he spoke to her and then took a shower. But when detectives brought Brannigan in for a second interview, he admitted that he'd lied to them. He'd never spoken to police that night. He had quietly observed them without being seen. When the detective asked why he lied, Brannigan said, to build drama, to pique people's interests in me. He also admitted that his aunt was asleep when he returned home. No one had seen him before he showered and went to bed. Holly Robinson claims Brannigan told her that he was breaking into homes the night of Lisa's murder. Several former friends and ex-girlfriends also say that Brannigan admitted to breaking into homes on Lee and Sedgwick for years. He would use his knife to cut into screens and open windows and doors. A week prior to Lisa's murder, someone had cut into the screen on Joel Rathbone's house, which was just behind the backyard where the girl's body was found. The same person apparently tried to break into the house across from Rathbone's too. And the night of the murder, Mrs. Bush, the owner of the property where Lisa's body was found, reported that she'd heard what sounded like someone breaking into a rental car in her driveway about 20 minutes before she heard the girl's screams. During the course of their investigation into Lisa's murder, Shaker Heights police believed that whoever killed her had learned that she was sneaking out of her house to meet up with her boyfriend, Dan Dreifert, that night. They knew that Kevin Young, 
who would later be tried and acquitted of the crime, had learned of Lisa's plans from a guy named Tex Workman while talking at Arabica on Shaker Square. The only other customers at the time when Tex and Kevin were talking about Lisa were David Brannigan and Holly Robinson. Just before Kevin's very public trial, Holly Robinson met with Cuyahoga County prosecutors. She told him that she believed Brannigan could have murdered Lisa Pruitt. He'd left her in plenty of time to intersect Lisa on her way to her boyfriend's house, and he had a collection of skinning knives, and he always kept one on him for protection. She says prosecutors were not interested in hearing her out. They said Brannigan had an alibi, says Robinson, but I was his alibi, and so I didn't think that was true. David Brannigan died in 2017. Cause of death was hypertensive, arteriosclerotic, cardiovascular disease, and cirrhosis of the liver. Before he died, he fathered a child with a woman named Tracy Warner. Shortly before his death, Brannigan began stockpiling weapons in their Twinsburg apartment, she says. When I asked Tracy whether she thought Brannigan could be involved in Lisa's murder, she said, Let me tell you a story you shared with me. When he was in preschool, a boy picked on him. He waited until lunchtime, and then he put Comet Cleaner in the boy's sandwich. Do I think he did it? Sure, I wouldn't be surprised. The stories about Brannigan's dark predilections continue to come in as news travels the grapevine of Shaker Heights. Just last month, this reporter was contacted by a former girlfriend of his from high school, a woman named Kim Forward. She started dating Brannigan when she was just a freshman, and he was a junior. She wasn't allowed to be at his house if his adopted parents weren't home, but sneak her over, anyway, using a footpath only neighborhood kids knew about, a thin path that wound through the backyards between Lee and Sedgwick. There was a spare bedroom over Brannigan's garage, and he would take her there for sex. Sometimes he would bring out the knives he collected and use them during foreplay. Kim knows firsthand how skilled Brannigan was at breaking into homes. He would sneak into her house at night, quietly enough that her father, who was a Vietnam vet, didn't hear him. Once inside, he would coerce her into doing things she didn't want to do. If you don't, I'll make a lot of noise and wake up your dad, he'd tell her. Looking back, he had episodes of darkness, she says today. Depressive episodes. Do I think he's capable of having killed Lisa? Yes, I do. But we had it in our minds back then that it was Kevin Young. Brannigan's friend John lives in Florida these days. Still remembers the night the porters died in great detail. I watched this guy going around the house, trying to get in, he says. We bolted, hopped the fence behind us and ran back to Sedgwick. Dave said the guy chased us, but I didn't see that. John says that Brannigan grew more reckless as he got older. He stole wine from John's parents, and, and he broke into the Miller's house down the street and stole a shotgun. When people mention David Brannigan, I get nervous, he said. He always wanted to be bigger and better than you. He always wanted the limelight. Bill's story is a little different today. He says he saw the black man come out of the back door of the porter's house. I heard the scream door slam shut, he says. Then I beeline straight to the fence. The detail about the door is odd, given that the house was locked from the inside when James Arnost arrived two days later. After running home, Bill realized that he'd lost his jacket. It had his name in it, he says, and he was afraid the police might find it. 
so he and Brannigan went back and discovered it stuck in the fence. Bill said that a couple detectives stopped by his house after Philip and Dorothy Porter's bodies were discovered that Sunday. They took the boys' statements. Later, one of the detectives came back to speak with Bill's mother. He told her he thought her son was lying. Not too long after that, Soki confessed to the murders and he never saw that detective again. I'm sure it was Danny Crawford I saw coming out of the house that night, he says. I had to point out to him that Danny Crawford is white. There is one way to know for sure who killed Philip and Dorothy Porter. The evidence could be tested. Somewhere, somewhere in storage is that iron that was used to strangle Dorothy. The killer would have needed a firm grip. James Arnos thinks it's time for a definitive answer. My family would like the evidence in the case to be tested for DNA, so that we may know for sure, and in the hope that it will bring some final clarity to this horrific event, he says. But for the moment, Shager Heights police consider the Porter's murders solved, and the Lisa Pruitt case has been deemed inactive. Civil rights attorney Terry Gilbert is currently reviewing Soki's case. The misconduct of Detective Doyle is breathtaking, he says. A textbook primer on how to corrupt the criminal justice system by manipulating snitches and engineering false confessions to create the illusion of solving crimes. After 30 years of forensic DNA progress, we now know how these nefarious tactics are a leading cause of wrongful convictions, where vulnerable victims like Donnie Soki languish in prison while Doyle walks away with bragging rights and no accountability. Final note. During the reporting of this story, Donnie Soki changed his story once again. He now maintains that he was involved in all of these murders. His letter was notarized and came not from the prison where all of his other letters came from, but from the home of retired detective Tom Doyle. The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the State Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit jamesrenner.com where you can find more information on my true crime books and novels. My website also has a link to the nonprofit I started last year, The Porchlight Project, which raises money for new DNA tests for Ohio cold cases. It's easy to donate online, and every little bit helps. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Look for his other creations, including Genius Dice, wooden dice that will give an artful twist to your gaming night, and his new Talking Pints, a clever way to mix up a fresh conversation. Available now at Uncommon Goods. Until next time, remember, there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everybody took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when someone needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better. <laughs>